Okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues. I must say that I'm very excited today because I have such a distinguished panel here today on such an up-to-date topic. This is really, really a highlight to me. We are going to talk about something which is literally happening today and in these minutes in Brussels and in the other European capitals and which does have an impact, believe me, on the, uh, not only on the general political agenda of, um, of the European Union, but also on your personal life. So we are going to debate on uh, developments from today in the context of green vaccination certificates or passports, or you name it, whatever you want to call it, with a really, really interdisciplinary and, and distinguished panel of four experts who I may very briefly introduce, um, starting with uh, Professor Dr. Luisa Bialasiewicz, who is a political geographer and professor of European governance in the Department of European Studies at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Then Dr. Joel Grogan, who completed her doctoral research on the rule of law in the European Union at the O'Reilly College and graduated then later at Trinity College Dublin and is at the moment working at the Faculty of Law of the University of uh, Oxford in the UK. Then we have uh, Professor Dr. Oskar Josef Strein, who is a fellow Austrian, as I may say, but uh, working in the Netherlands as a professor at the University of Groningen uh, with a background that is mainly in uh, human dignity in the digital age with a specific focus on data protection, data security, data ethics, and similar topics. And then finally, Professor Simitri Kochenov, who is uh, a professor working mainly in the field of citizenship law, rule of law, European constitutionalism, and EU law of the overseas, doing this at uh, inter alia and in particular at the Central European University, which is a university newly based in Vienna, where I am also from. So we have a really, really multidisciplinary and multinational panel here today. So pleased to have all of you with us. I will not uh, use too much of our time now by further introductions and simply hand over to Luisa. Luisa, please kindly tell us what's happening at the moment and how we should put this into a framework, please. Thank you very much for that introduction. And thank you very much for the invitation to be part of this panel. I feel kind of, you know, uh, here under false pretenses, since I'm not a lawyer, I'm a geographer, so, but I'll, I'll try to add a geographical perspective to the discussion. So what is happening? Well, I, I was preparing for tonight's debate, uh, preparing to talk about a vaccine passport, but that appears to be no longer the term that the Commission is using. So for, the, for those of you who have been following the discussions and the Commission's presentation today, what they are unveiling is something called the Digital Green Certificate. And the proposal, the original proposal, which was supposed to cover simply vaccination certificates, so certifying that somebody had been vaccinated to allow for free travel. The proposal has now been modified to cover not only proof of vaccination, but also negative test results and proof of recovery from COVID, whatever that means. So, you know, we don't know if this is, you know, immunological testing. I mean, you know, we can kind of unpack the science behind it. Now, because this new proposal has in fact been modified from the original proposal for so-called vaccine passports, the commission and those, you know, 
pushing the initiative are claiming that in this way it will be non-discriminatory because vaccination is you know, no longer, as it was in the previous proposals, uh, a prerequisite for free movement. Now, one of the big issues behind the original proposals for the so-called vaccine passports, and the EU is not the only um, body that has been uh, pushing these, um, the big issue there, and I've written a number of pieces of, on, on this question with my colleague um, Alberta Alemano, um, was that it created a whole series of not just legal, but also ethical question. And you know, it was based on a kind of pro profoundly unequal premise. At this moment, and I don't need to say this to anybody listening, vaccination rates and access to vaccines across Europe is profoundly unequal, not just between countries, but also within them. So um, I'm, I teach at the University of Amsterdam, but I'm currently in, in Rome. And you know, within Italy, I mean, the regional differences are tremendous. So some regions are much further ahead. Um, within regions, there are also quite significant differences between you know, kind of rural areas, urban centers that have been much quicker in delivering vaccines. Um, but you know, beyond these territorial differences that still exist, I mean, and are not going to be you know, kind of eliminated anytime soon, there are also differences between member states and the categories that you know, were prioritized to have access to vaccination. And you know, here again, I'm saying something that most of you will be well aware of. So while some countries, you know, after vaccinating the most vulnerable, the elderly, um, the ill, have moved on um, you know, to new categories, school teachers, university lecturers in some countries. So you know, certainly I know in Italy, in Austria, I know there was a bit of kind of back and forth whether university lecturers were teachers or not teachers, you know? And so there's, there's been kind of this debate on the categories that were allowed to access vaccination. What this has resulted in is this, you know, kind of patchwork of, um, of regulations, of decision-making with, you know, the result that, um, as, you know, as I said, there's a, a whole series of territorial, um, but not only inequalities in access to vaccines. So, you know, the original proposal that would have tied free movement in Europe to access to vaccines was, you know, was profoundly flawed, if only on that basis. But there is another issue here that still remains with this digital green certificate that's being proposed because even though it you know it unpacks it you know kind of it decouples the certificate from only vaccination certification the presumption that somehow the holder of this certificate is now safe to travel is still very very problematic um, so you know as you all well know um, vaccines you know, prevent disease. They don't prevent infection. You can still be a carrier of COVID. And in fact, you know, even though some of the early studies of Pfizer are showing that there is any kind of reduced transmission rate, just because somebody is vaccinated doesn't mean, you know, that they're safe um, to travel across borders or to travel anywhere or to move about. So they're safe for themselves, but they're definitely not necessarily safe for anybody else around them. And I think the push with this new certificate um, that, as I said, now covers, you know, vaccination, negative test results and supposed immunity. The push here is very much to open up travel, but especially open up tourism. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the question here is whose safety, 
whose health is being traded um, at whose expense. So, you know, whereas perhaps, you know, we're not going to be talking about, you know, the kind of inequalities that a merely vaccine passport would have created. Here, there are, you know, also territorial, let's say, trade-offs. Um, so one of the strongest uh, groups, of course, in pushing both the original vaccine passport and now this digital green certificate um, has been, of course, the travel industry and tourism associations in general. So, you know, they were jubilant today saying, yes, our voice has been heard. You know, we will open Europe up again. Um, with, you know, and then we have to ask which parts of Europe. Um, the, you know, the, the cost at which this will, you know, will happen, if it does happen, indeed, is something that I think should concern us. I'll um, make one more point here, because I don't want to take up too much time. And, you know, we will come back, I'm sure, to some of the other facets of this new proposal. One of the things that um, Alberto Alemán and I have argued in some of the pieces that we've written, and I think this is an important um, part of this, is that this first, you know, this passport, now this certificate has really become a fetish for European politicians, right? Since, you know, um, we cannot really scientifically, immunologically certify virus safety, right, for others, I mean, we, we're just certifying the traveler herself or himself as safe because vaccinated or immune. Um, this idea that we can have this magic pass, this magic digital object that will somehow, you know, mark people as safe um, is really very performative. And that's about it, you know, since, you know, it's not possible you know, to actually, um, you know, as I said, scientifically, immunologically certify that safety, it gives at least, you know, the semblance of one doing something and, you know, saying that it is possible, right? It is possible to have safe travel, which in this moment is simply is not. I mean, in the absence of, you know, kind of continuing other containment measures, this is really um, a fetish. So I will leave it at that and hope to come back to some of these points later. Yeah, thank you so much, Louisa. Let me first continue by apologizing uh, most most firmly to Joelle that I forgot to mention her current affiliation. I was so fascinated by her CV that I stopped in the middle. So sorry for this. Her, her current affiliation is that she's at the Middlesex University London and works for the Reconnect project. So sorry for this. Uh, um, and secondly, I also need to say that the, the, the mastermind behind all this and the reason why we are meeting today is actually Oscar and Oscar because he wrote a paper together with uh, Dimitri and Andrei Zwitter uh, and sent this to me uh, on, as I quote now, the paper, uh, the paper's title, a terrible great idea, COVID-19 vaccination passports in the spotlight, which were, and, and, and I read this and I was so fascinated by the paper that we then decided that it would be a good idea to have this uh, this meeting today. Um, Oscar, when I when I re read your paper and when I see today's development and when I also listen to Luisa now um, rightly pointing to the fact that no longer it's a vaccination passport we are talking about, it's a certificate. Do you think that your article is outdated even before it was published therefore, or is it even more important to read the text now? 
I would argue it's not outdated because um, on the 1st of March in the announcement, the original announcement of Ursula von der Leyen, she already stated that the certificate would have these three functions. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the points that we make together in the paper is that um, the purpose is so blurry of what we are actually trying to achieve here. And that uh, is a perfect segue to make a couple of remarks on the concrete proposals that have been presented today in forms of a regulation and a couple of observations from the perspective of privacy and data protection in particular. So um, continuing with that argument, uh, when looking through uh, those two different regulations, the first one of which is um, applicable to citizens of the European Union and their family members, regardless of the nationality. And the second uh, is applicable to uh, non-nationals of the European Union, but who um, legitimately reside in the EU. Uh, so looking at those two regulations, which essentially have the same uh, kind of provisions, it is quite striking to see that um, this uh, regulation does not have an, an impact assessment and specifically a data protection impact assessment is missing. And uh, what is stated in the text is just simply one sentence saying, due to the urgency, uh, it was not possible to make an impact assessment, which immediately begs the question, uh, which kind of uh, urgency are we talking about and where does it come from? And what is also quite interesting, uh, you know, really looking at the broad legal landscape here is the, the proposal in the form of a regulation, which is a fully harmonized, directly applicable act of European Union law. And, um, and based on the legal basis and probably my colleague Dimitri will talk about more about that of, of non-discrimination, right? So I try to keep here my introductory remarks really focused on the privacy and data protection aspects. Um, and um, what, when you then look at how uh, it is trying to be implemented or was actually trying to be achieved, it is a very largely technology neutral description um, of these three kind of tools. So of the certification of vaccination, of the uh, testing certification, and another test which uh, sort of certifies that there are enough antigens in the body um, against, uh, the, uh, against being susceptible to the, to the virus, which uh, by the way, only is supposed to last for 180 days. And, uh, and then what it mentions is that you get either in a digital form or in a paper form, uh, but member states, as far as I uh, saw, are free to choose. So they can offer both digital or paper, or they can either offer one of them, um, that you get a sort of a barcode. And that's what it talks about. It doesn't really talk about the technicalities because the purpose of the act is really just to harmonize uh, the, the information exchange and to provide for uh, the validity of the information provided. So. Um, this is this is quite interesting because uh, the obvious question from the from the perspective of a citizen would not only be what do I see or or can I print it out if I don't want to use a phone. The question is also how would it work in the background? And here the European Union does not give uh, clear answers how that works. It just provides a, a framework, so to speak, um, that um, that makes sure that um, there is some kind of information exchange and, and interoperability going on based on very broad principles, but a lot of questions behind it. So how is the technology actually really working, et cetera, uh, are not being answered by the text. And that is concerning because we are seeing that uh, already several member states, such as Denmark, Sweden, today I read also that Austria wants to start earlier with the use of such vaccination uh, um, 
um, certificates um, that that you know that the, the member states are already moving, and now we have this attempt, which is supposed to be uh, in in force as of June, from the uh, European Commission with really this this regulation uh, um, uh, approach, and it's unclear yet what that technically means behind that. Um, the only thing, maybe just briefly elaborating on the technical aspects, is that uh, a lot of people are proposing decentralized solutions, especially coming from the blockchain uh, space and self-sovereign identity. We, um, we elaborate on that in the paper what that means, but essentially it means that, uh, that, that the users themselves can uh, authenticate themselves without having to share or store information centrally. But that seems not possible because um, uh, because the responsibilities of the controllers and the processors uh, really have to be lined out clearly. That's that's one thing where the text seems to make uh, uh, put a hold on it. So, um, but otherwise, uh, I mean, what the commission does from a legally technical kind of point of view is that it uh, defines a very formally narrow purpose. Okay. So uh, that means that the legal basis is not the content of the individual. It's rather the uh, the necessity from the um, for the society based on a specific legal framework, namely this one. Uh, so, and, um, and what it also mentions is that there should be no data retention framework going on in the back. But building on what I just said, that the technicalities are largely left to the member states and um, that we're talking also about an issue that might affect security. It is for me quite unclear to see how the, um, how the commission actually at the end of the day wants to, wants to prohibit that. So also here, um, yeah, um, I, I, I think it's, a, it's an attempt to, um, you know, get control of the discussion, uh, uh, to have um, the parliament and the council really uh, giving them a venue to, to discuss this on a union level. But there are a lot of uh, gaps and holes, uh, especially from, from the really the implementation perspectives. Yeah, Oscar, if I may uh, ask you to speculate a little bit with me, uh, as both of us have been involved in different European projects for quite some time, we are both of us quite used to huge European IT projects, which then tend to be much more complex and, and, and needing a lot more of time than originally expected when being implemented. So the question I would have to you would be, in the first round at least, do you think that it's at all realistic that, that this will happen in, in, in the timeframe expected? Or is it, is it more realistic to expect that we should not care too much about all this because it will never happen, or at least not in any of the time sets that we, that we are reading about at the moment? I think the answer on this question really depends on the political momentum and whether the member states are willing to sacrifice, um, you know, their own kind of um, that their, their, their attempt of taking the spotlight themselves, instead, uh, and 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 try to give uh, make make free movement possible again in a way where they where they put the European Commission in the driver's seat. There's another aspect. Uh, why I think member states will be really hesitant, apart from the data protection elements, and that is when you look at the how this regime will come to an end. That's also very, very interesting, because that is based on um, a declaration of the director of the World Health Organization that the pandemic is over. Mm. But that does not mean that the regulation will cease to exist. Rather, its main provisions will be suspended, and if the WHO director 
will again declare that there's another variant of, of SARS-CoV-2 or another outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 or a similar pandemic, then the commission via a delegated act, so that means it doesn't have to go to the member states, it doesn't have to go to the parliamentarians, etc., can reenact mm. this digital green certificate. So it's actually really, uh, politically speaking and speculating, it's really an attempt of, of taking charge of this discussion. Uh, and then labeled as we are uh, facilitating free movement again. Yeah, yeah. Which is, by the way, also the case in the in the German law uh, that this connection between the WHO and the emergency measures. So this is something uh, that you can read in the Infektionsschutzgesetz, which is the German law on the disease on the infectious diseases. And it's very interesting to see how suddenly such a factual statement, such as the pandemic has ended comes into a huge legal, um, legally important role, right? This is, this is possibly something very new to this, to this debate at the moment. Thank you, Oscar. Uh, Dimitri, you will certainly help us in even opening up the picture a little bit more uh, by, by discussing with us about, in particular, the, the different politics of vaccine recognition and non-recognition between states, because that will certainly also play a role in the debate. Would you like to commit to continue, Dimitri? Yeah, we'll build on uh, what's in the paper already and uh, also enrich it a little bit with the, with, the, with the newest data. So to agree with Luisa, uh, it seems like the proposal itself has nothing to do with uh, guaranteeing safety to for Europeans. So it has some uh, radically different goals in mind and those goals are never specified with clarity. The proposal says it will not discriminate. The proposal says it will unlock free movement. And here we should be reminded of what is the meaning of free movement. The meaning of free movement, in the, at least in the Schengen zone, in the, within the internal market, is that there are no frontiers and there are no checks. So the easiest way to destroy free movement par excellence is simply to say you need some additional document. Once you need a document, you need someone to check the document, which means that we put a large cross on the idea of free movement. And now, if that document doesn't serve the purpose of protecting all of us, what does it then serve next to what Oscar has outlined, uh, gaining some, uh, some momentum in terms of discussion for, for the institutions at the European level? And here, the biggest problem is already in the text. Uh, it's clear that the text is about test types and vaccine models, not about safety and antibodies. Because if we, if we look at the text, it says that member state can recognize the vaccines which are not EMA certified, which means that, and this will be the absolute majority of vaccines in the world. Correct me if I'm wrong, there are thousands of vaccines now being prepared and being tested. And, uh, and among those which are the, the most widely used ones, there are two, uh, which is Sinopharm and, and Sputnik V, uh, the Chinese one and the Russian one, which are not EMA series, EMA certified, but are widely used in the European Union. Uh, although CEU was exiled from Hungary, I am based in Budapest, just to remind Hungary that there is a little bit of CEU here. And the two most popular vaccines here are Sinopharm vaccine and, uh, and the Sputnik V vaccine. Uh, good news for those who are vaccinated is that they do work. If we, if we look at the Lancet publications, what we also cite in the paper, it's absolutely clear that there is 91 and a little bit 
percent uh, effectiveness, which is attested to by uh, by large large scale studies. So Sputnik V is just as good as other vaccines, but it doesn't count at all for the European Union whether the vaccine works or not, which means that if this regulation becomes law, then uh, the Hungarian population, those, uh, those European citizens who were vaccinated by their own vaccines because their state took it as a priority to, to protect them from dying from this, from this uh, unfortunate disease, rather than waiting for EMA to certify the vaccines, all these people will be proclaimed a threat to public health potentially in other member states, unless those member states somehow decide to recognize these vaccines. Well, what will these member states decide to do? We already hear a response from the Polish government. The Poles said, we will never recognize anything Russian, let alone Chinese. Uh, it doesn't matter what Lancet writes. It doesn't matter whether the vaccine is effective. It's not about health. So we already know, and I already know, once I receive my jab, I will not be able to enter Poland. It's not that I, I planned any flights to Warsaw or a vacation, uh, a, a, a vacation uh, in Gdynia. But still, it pains me to see the European Commission selling the idea of a re revamped borderless internal market uh, under the guise of uh, unifying our understanding of what is safe, while at the same time uh, weaving into the text and into the major understanding that underpins the regulation, that in fact, health is the last concern of the European institutions. And this is something that I think is, is deeply problematic. So what will, what, do we, what will we have in practice? In practice, uh, all of us will have, this, uh, will have this digital green pass or a piece of paper with a barcode, as Oscar said, and, and as, as the regulation says, and as the commission has announced. But then this barcode and its validity will depend on plenty of other factors besides the fact that it attests to some kind of vaccination. It will depend on where we are going, what kind of vaccine we've had, what kind of test we've had. Because of course, if, if I'm vaccinated with Sputnik V, thank you Hungarian government, then I will have antibodies in my, in, 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 in my blood. So, uh, so unfortunately, then I will be able to, to get tested by taking my blood. And for 180 days, I might be okay. I might lie that I had symptoms and I really survived COVID in order not to tell the Poles that I had Sputnik V. Uh, but this is not what the European Union should be doing, right? So if we're, th if we're thinking about a real kickstart, a real reopening of the internal market, then we should be thinking about a borderless space where no discrimination, no, no arbitrary political action is masked and sold to Europeans under the guise of a health emergency with no controls over, uh, over privacy concerns and, uh, and over other potential rights violations in the context of the introduction of this extremely far-reaching measures. So I think I will leave it at that. But uh, so to me, this proposal, and this is the biggest problem with it, I think, besides uh, the, the, the core problem that Louisa has outlined, to me, this proposal is, a, is an absurd political proposal that goes amiss in terms of, in, in terms of uh, basic safety and attesting to antibodies in someone's blood. So if we, if, if we think it's okay, then probably we, we, we shouldn't be speaking about any logic 
that that we would uh, that we would expect of of the legislator. So it's a, it's a disaster to my mind, and I think the paper already predicted that disaster a little bit. Dimitri, let me ask a very naive question. Probably, what is the official argument of the Commission to draw this distinction between the EMA certified uh, vaccines and the others? So, what 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 do they claim to do by doing this? They say so. Uh, from what I've seen from the from the presentation, they want safe vaccines for Europeans. So, uh, and uh, who is there to determine safe? This is the this is the EMA, our mm -hmm. uh, our, our common agency. Uh, but then, uh, but then, it's not the the scientific data and this and the scale of adoption elsewhere in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. And there is also an, there is an important external dimension which harms the rights of all the Europeans who happen to be outside of the internal market today. Why? Because, uh, because the regulation allows for bilateral agreements with the approval of, uh, of the European institutions uh, to, to allow for similar, similar certificates to be accepted when they're issued, when you, when they're issued abroad. But again, uh, plenty of countries around the world, including the vaccination leaders, which is in, in terms of the absolute numbers, correct me if I'm wrong, it's China and India. China and India don't use the vaccines which are certified by Europeans. They use other vaccines which are certified by their own medicinal agencies. And then add to that the Russian Federation, add to that all the, the, the African countries and Latin American countries, which also buy the vaccines from China and from Russia. And you have, you have a, a limited number of options whom do we conclude these bilateral agreements with? That's that's a very big question. With the United States, probably, uh, with Canada, and with a, with a handful of other countries, uh, with the UK, if suddenly uh, Miss von der Leyen uh, comes to comes to like them, uh, otherwise uh, she would she would prefer to divide Ireland. Uh, but in, in, instead of instead of uh, uh, switching on the understanding that uh, antibodies in the blood should be the driver rather than rather than politics. Mm, okay. I see. Which brings us to Ireland and on St. Patrick's Day, and which brings us also to the broader perspective. So which brings us finally to Joel. Joel, would you like to continue by placing this whole passport slash certification discussion in Europe into a broader context on global governance of um, COVID-19 related pandemic mitigation? Most certainly, most certainly. And of course, uh, happy St. Patrick's Day, Law Fela Fodrick, to everyone out there listening. Um, I'm delighted to be wearing green on this occasion, even if I realize you might only listen to this in future, but I can guarantee I'm wearing green. Uh, so yes, my, my place here and what, what's already been a fascinating discussion is giving a little bit of the broader global context and global themes that are underlying so much of what we're going to be debating in the context of vaccine passports or, as we found out today, vaccine certificates. So I'd like to offer four brief points of uh, four ideas I think that should be running in the back of our minds while we discuss this. First of all, um, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed endemic socioeconomic inequalities across the world. There is truth in saying that the, the global recommendations of stay home and wash your hands are meaningless in the context of uh, overpopulated, under-resourced, lack of access to basic sanitary conditions in locations across the world, particularly in the global south. 
beyond that, we see the extreme difference in access to vaccines in these locations. And this is a point that I'll touch on a little bit later. But the second thing that we need to also be aware of in the context of governance and the COVID-19 pandemic is that it has profoundly, profoundly changed the way we govern. And of concern to those like myself and Dimitri, and I could guess everyone on this call and everyone listening, is this is quite very, well, very, very concerning from the perspective of democracy and the rule of law. I'm not only talking about the false dichotomy between how democracies are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and how autocracies are responding. That's, that's a false dichotomy. But I'm actually talking about real concerns that are not only being exposed in what, what Oscar has just discussed and what Dimitri have just discussed, but also in what we are seeing in regulation in Europe and the world. These are concerns for legality, for certainty, for scrutiny, and also the amount that we have public consultation. Essentially, what do these laws mean? There's only so far a year later that we can keep saying this is an emergency. We shouldn't be looking at rationale. We shouldn't be looking so much closely in terms of legality. We shouldn't be looking at certainty. This can only guarantee confusion, poor compliance, and ultimately raise questions for public trust, which if I'm going to briefly pitch, um, I'm going to say public trust is the key indicator on success of any measure, of any response to COVID-19, public trust. Um, a third point, and I'm going to so much echo everything that Louisa has said, is the disparity in response vis-a-vis -vis global governance and national governance. What has characterized a year of pandemic response has been, it has been led by national governments or even more so by state and regional governments. We can compare the responses of say those federal executives in Brazil and the US uh, under the Trump administration who did not take it seriously with the state responses and the kind of critical concerns, critical issues that that's raised internally within these states. But we can also look at say the German lender or even right up to Indonesia and the very different responses that could again undermine any kind of regulated or coordinated action. In reality, in the European Union, we haven't seen significant leadership or governance at EU level for very good reasons of competence, for very good reasons at the very core of what the European Union is and does. But going forward, this is something that is so desperately necessary, so needed. As a final point, and circling back to the immediate discussion, uh, at least in the context of my own research with about 100 academics worldwide looking at this COVID-19 response, we're also seeing a huge disparity in vaccination programs. This goes back to socioeconomic inequalities, the, the issues of global north, global south, the wealthy countries able to hoard vaccines in some cases. But also in some countries, the prioritization is very different. For example, in Indonesia, we see military, government, um, doctors, police being prioritized as first in line. But second in line is going to be those of working age. It's not going to be vulnerable groups. We can also see the, the plans in Egypt where anyone outside certain categories will actually have to pay for a vaccine we're seeing very, very different responses, different planning for vaccination programs. As, as a final point, and this is something that I would need to underline, even as we talk about national diversity and global governance, 
the the ultimate truth of this pandemic this absolute one reality is it is a global problem one of the greatest concerns that i think we would all share is that we will move from pandemic to endemic an endemic virus that mutates and is never fully eradicated so even as we talk about vaccine passports and free movement and my desperately needed holiday out of london this is a reality i think we all globally have to face which is not really the most optimistic perspective i would say right so <laughs> things are getting worse even <laughs> yeah thank you thank you so much uh, joel for this um i would i would suggest that uh we come into some kind of interaction between all of you but um, for, for um, allowing us to enter into this stage, I would like to ask two certainly very, very stupid questions, but uh, probably each of you has a different answer on this. The first one would be, why this rush? So why is this coming so quickly and why is it so urgent? And why is the argument that, uh, that we need this uh, to decide on within days? So just to give you um, a little bit of national perspective here in Austria, the, the, the national debate in the Austrian parliament on this issue uh, lasted less than two days uh, without any anybody <laughs> reading or, or commenting or doing whatsoever on the law, uh, including, for example, the relevant NGOs and the, the, the relevant um, uh, consultancy agencies, uh, state-driven or not state-driven, all of them not really having the opportunity to give any kind of comment on the, on the national framework. And I would expect that quite the same is happening at the moment on a European level. So the first question would be, why the rush? And the second question would be, why is it green? I think it's not because of St. Patrick's, right? So there, there might be another, there might be another reason behind this. So, so the floor is open. Whoever wants to react first, can I jump in? And I mean, yeah. I'll be very brief on why the rush, and I'll give you, I'll, I'll try to give some context for the, mm -hmm. you know, the two, the two national, let's say, discussion bubbles that that I'm familiar with, which is the Dutch one and then the Italian one. I mean, in the Netherlands, actually, this has entered into the discussions of the ongoing elections, mm -hmm. you know. With some parties, I mean, certainly the D66 Liberal Party has taken this on, you know, quite strongly. Um, in Italy, um, there really hasn't been that much discussion. I think there's too, you know, there's much, there's a lot of preoccupation right now with, you know, getting the vaccination right. I mean, uh, we've just um, uh, appointed a general to take over. Well, just a, a couple of weeks ago, at this point, to take over the vaccination efforts. And you know, then there's the whole, you know, speaking of Joel, your your points about trust, the whole AstraZeneca brouhaha, and we can talk about the politics and the geopolitics of that because science has very little to do with it. Mm. But why the rush? I mean, certainly, you know, apart from the push from uh, countries with, you know, important tourism sectors, including Austria, including Greece, Spain, Italy, the EPP has been the main pusher in um, the European Parliament of this. And they keep arguing that, yes, this is for the tourism sector, but also for um, European citizens living in border areas, you know, who are not able to move about, which is not entirely true. I mean, you know, countries have found ways to facilitate that. Um, but I think your question, you know, of, of why the rush, I mean, is very important. One, because it allows for a crisis politics. It allows for crisis management mode where you do not have to, you know, respond 
to challenges, whether legal, ethical, or regarding data protection. It has to be done. And under you know, the call of it has to be done, and it has to be done now, you know, things become possible. Um, because I think, you know, once more, why the rush? It's really, and here, you know, I, I will keep echoing now what, what Dimitri said. It's not about health. It's not about ensuring safety. We still do not have, maybe we'll never have a vaccine that entirely provides safety, that, you know, ensures you as a virus-free individual, as a, you know, non-carrier. Um, so it's not about that. Um, and then why is it green? Um, I don't think it's in celebration of St. Patrick's Day, unfortunately, that would be a much nicer reason. Um, certainly, you know, the kind of uh, chromo politics, we can call it that, that's behind it, is meant to signal, you know, um, a new beginning, perhaps, you know, an opening springtime hope, um, you know, or uh, perhaps also, you know, to be seen as part of the push for, you know, the, the new European Green Deal, the next generation EU, which is all shaded, you know, in various forms of green. That's my guess, but certainly, you know, and here I think I would, you know, um, very much kind of link it to the kind of this fetish of the certificate and its magic powers that somehow, you know, it's the opening to a new green future where we'll all be free to go to the beach or, you know, elsewhere. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But at least, yeah. I mean, for me, before Dimitri, just a second before, or, or Oscar, I don't know who was the person uh, I heard um, in, in my headphone at the moment, uh, in my headset, <laughs> just one point. Uh, I mean, Dimitri rightly mentioned, when I, when, when I see this certificate, it reminds me very much of the past, which was very different, which was Schengen, which was me being able to move around without needing to show anything. So I think when you call this then green instead of red, which is it, which it would need to be, right? Because it's some kind of stoplight, right? So you need to show something in order to be allowed to travel somewhere. So then it's perhaps even more cynical or, or less appropriate to, to, to call it green, right? So I would have probably chosen a more neutral color such as orange then or, <laughs> or black, <laughs> but not green, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to, um, sorry, Dimitri, <laughs> I just wanted to uh, very briefly elaborate on this, uh, so why this rush? And I think, um, uh, you can summarize it, this from my perspective, and, and Luisa already um, uh, also elaborated about this in the, in the same kind of direction. I, I think you can summarize it, summarize it as a statement, we're in control. That's, that's actually the point. And, and we're, we're in control telling to the citizens that they can go to the beach in summer, telling to the people who own hotels and who own airlines that there will be tourism, that they won't miss the next season. Um, at the same time, um, also keeping the, the, the member states in charge because it's also mentioned in the proposal that member states have been working on this, you know, more fragmentation would, would be disastrous. Um, but it's also the private sector, right? If there is so much demand, um, then uh, there will be private solutions and there, there will be uh, sectoral solutions which go in the same kind of direction. And that's why I think, um, I mean, in the paper we call that there is a danger of not doing this being executive underreach. And so I think that the commission really felt the urge now to, to again, take control of this. And, um, 
and, and there is also this uh, this aspect because I think the the commissioners would actually frame it very very differently than we do. They would say this is non discrimination because now we ensure with this legal framework that there is actually a common set of rules in place that ensures that everybody will be part of the solution. Everybody, of course, being people like only in the European Union, but still that's, that's how they would put it forward. And that, that, is the, that is the intention and the driver. The problem is, however, that the competences don't go far enough. So really when, when, when this, you know, when there is, when the green uh, certificate really becomes meaningful, when it comes to data infrastructures backing it up, when it comes to control infrastructures backing it up, et cetera, that's a vaccine recognition, that's all in the hands of member states. And so, and and that leaves it really in the in the political domain. Now it has it opens up this discussion, and we will see where it goes. But as such, it's it's just not profound enough. Yeah. And which brings me back to the question again to you, Oscar, probably, which is: this is in in reality, it's a huge IT project, and it's uh, at least it's also a huge IT project. And I don't know whether there's anybody in the driving seat governing this IT project at the moment, and who that should be. I mean, it it won't be von der Leyen, right? So who 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 is really driving this? I don't see that yet. Do you? No, uh, there is. It's a standardization effort. But uh, I mean that the real story going on here is in, in exactly what you mentioned. So it's really in, on that domain. And it's completely unclear for me at this point how the commission is trying to address that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dimitri. Why the rush? Uh, this pandemic has been an absolute failure for the commission together with other institutions because the European Union has disappeared for a while. Uh, suddenly we had a totally different world a world of interstate driver. If, if you remember uh, some of the member states blocking the delivery of masks uh, to which uh, I think it was something in the, in the Czech Republic and Italy, uh, a disaster. So uh, instead of thinking together, it was thinking apart and building walls while ignoring at the same time that, that for the virus, this, these walls are of, uh, of no relevance. So in general, we've seen that the, the levels of contagion didn't necessarily follow or were stopped. Uh, by this, uh, by these border fences. So instead of adopting a regional, a regional approach, which was which was actually cross-country in nature, would have been cross-country in nature, the European Union disappeared and and remained remained absolutely mute. And then this kind of European Union, which is not there, uh, brought us to the situation when the vaccination effort and vaccination procurement has also been a disaster. So now it's, it's impossible to praise the European Union for anything. And the last, the, the, in, in, in terms of this COVID year, and the last element where the European Union has been failing is uh, the member states openly defying all the basics of free movement by simply closing the borders. I am now in one of those member states. I had no problem flying in. Uh, and, and actually the, the planes are full, but on paper, the border is absolutely closed. The same applies to Belgium, uh, the same applies uh, probably still now to Germany. There, 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 there are several member states which simply say, we don't care about the law, get lost. And the commission has been absolutely incapable of doing anything with those states. So the rush is about saving face, at least a little bit. Uh, to show that the commission is, is active doing something, throw the bones to those like Hungary uh, who have been sitting, uh, sitting in their own uh, safety cage, although now contagion levels in Hungary are higher 
than across the border. So probably closing the border is not as effective, uh, but it's against the law. And now, in order, to, in order to act in this situation where your letters to those governments are ignored and the borders are still closed, although they shouldn't be, kind of, the commission says, let's, uh, let's integrate uh, our, our knowledge in terms of how we can make free movement absolutely impossible. So it's building on illegality, which is, uh, which is uh, uh, practiced by several governments, in order to make it kind of accepted all over the territory of the internal market, which I think is a disastrous way of, uh, of speaking with those who say that the law is something they don't care about. But then I would agree with Oscar, what can the commission do? The, there are not so many tools and there are not so many, uh, so many buttons to push in order to, in order to generate a rational science-based and, and human rights-driven response, which, which is what precisely uh, has been missing so far. Uh, from uh, from European Union's actions in in mitigating the pandemic, uh, so I and I think green is irrelevant in this kind of context because this kind of disaster con context uh, you can wave whatever flag and you can unveil it on any uh, any distinguished holiday and green is a wonderful color but uh, this is not what uh, this is not what should be done uh, full stop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm immediately going to declare my bias and say I'm not answering uh, why is it green because <laughs> green is is the best color, mm -hmm. frankly it's just the best color but I recognize my bias. Yeah. Um, just in terms of of why the rush, um, what what I would say in this context is I continue to be surprised unsurprised uh, about all actions under emergency powers globally and especially within Europe. So in the context of my own research, I looked at 70 countries in the first initial response to pandemic, so that first three-month period. And now a year later, I'm again looking at 70 countries and their response. And what surprised, unsurprised me, was we continue to see a majority of states either acting under a state of emergency or where that didn't exist for constitutional reasons, using ordinary law as if it was an emergency power. We're also still seeing, again, a year later, a majority of legislatures in the European Union, and again, globally, taking a step back from any degree of real scrutiny. So this is a combination of both governments enjoying wonderful, oh, gosh, this is really damning. This is a combination of governments making use of their own executive powers to make decisions very, very quickly, to have very, very fast responses to the pandemic, but also we're seeing legislatures and to a lesser extent courts taking a step back from scrutiny. From my own rule of law perspective, this is concerning because we are 12 months later, we should be increasing scrutiny, we should be increasing consultation. If I was to make uh, recommendations on good governance, on good responses, we've seen that countries that listen to criticism, countries that open up laws and regulations and measures to criticism and respond and reform accordingly, do better. That's hmm. simply observable within the EU and globally. However, I think this comes back to a point that we're, we're echoing, which is it's a point of control and response. Going through this quickly, responding quickly can be justified in many ways in response to an emergency. But looking at time now and looking at the impact that this green certificate will make, 
there is time for scrutiny. There is time for review. There is time for having a podcast and discussing different aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Well, Joel, if I may uh, also ask the question a little bit differently. I mean, from a very cynical point of view, what the commission is doing here is, a, is, in my view, at least a very high risk game, right? So they are pushing the thing very, very much uh, and, and, and rushing through everything. And, and so first you argue that it will not pay off, but even, but secondly, the risk is very, very relevant that it will simply not work, right? So that either the IT or the member states or, or, or whoever will, will stand in the, in, in the middle of the road, hindering this to, to stay on track. And wouldn't that be the, I mean, isn't that something that you better think about when starting with such an initiative so so that you might finally end up with a situation where you pushed everything and you rushed everything through and at the end everybody again sees that you are that you are not able to 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 govern the situation in the most brutal sense well i'm currently living and sitting in a country of the infamous track and trace IT program. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much I can talk about software development over the course of billions of pounds. Mm-hmm. But um, just to go to this, this second point, um, I think one of the realities facing the European Commission is they are, to a large extent, in a catch-22 situation, that this, this pandemic and the impact on the EU, the impact on the internal market, the four freedoms, is profound and it demands coordination. This is something that is desperately needed within Europe, a common coordinated response to so many of these issues that are affecting all of us. Mm. But the other side of that catch-22, which I recognize I'm misusing that metaphor terribly, but let's imagine that there's a second two in that 22 is exactly what you say. If, if you rush something of such great complexity, but you also leave a very significant amount of discretion to member states, it risks breaking down before it's even been made, that all of those key cogs within the machine of this vaccine certificate working insofar as it aims to be working, it aims to enable free movement, will not succeed. So a very difficult situation situation, but I would keep harking back to my same points, which are mm-hmm. coordination and scrutiny. Leave this open to discussion. Make the best possible decisions that you can and stop rushing. We are 12 months later. We can take time to do this the best that we can. Yeah, but this door is already closed now by today because the commission came up with something and I mean, they, they, it's out there, right? So it's it's no longer just talking. It's, it's, it's a concrete... Uh, proposal for a hard piece of hard law right so always opportunity for reform mm-hmm. okay I'll jump in just uh, with a small remark it, the there is a risk that it will it, it will fail and something will malfunction but if we read it once again it's clear that it's designed to drag down uh, dozens of thousands of europeans in different member states because, because Luxembourg, once again, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and this is just the beginning, I believe, are the countries that do not use the vaccines around which this proposal is based, which means that by definition, even if the IT aspects, even if this barcode is, 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 is nicely uh, catchable by all the devices that should read it uh, are fine, 
the whole proposal is not fine because it's not about it's not about immunity even at the lower level than what Louisa opened uh, our meeting with uh, because we don't we don't know how much this immunity should should ultimately matter in, if if we want to to reach a reality when virus doesn't uh, that, that, that doesn't doesn't spread as far uh, so. Uh, so there are there are there are problems of design uh, which are in part uh, rooted in, in what Joel outlined as the main problem, and but but there are also the the, the flaws the, the the likelihood of uh, of failures which do not in any way uh, redeem the whole thing. Yeah, but again, Dimitri, I mean the best possible outcome, even if everything worked well, right? So even if I were vaccinated with the best available. EMA vaccination, even if the barcode worked, even if I got a plane to Mallorca and all this works, I would end up in a situation which would be very different from 2019. So even the best possible outcome of all this is very much worse than what I would expect, right? So I, it's, it's a no-win situation, isn't it? Well, it's a, it's a dramatic reality when the world is uh, is taken over by uh, the idea of mitigating this pandemic at at any cost, and in the context of the EU, even uh, when the the actions that are being taken outright outright deprived of uh, of any of of some clear sense, not not any sense whatsoever. Uh, we, we we know what 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 drives the Commission, but. But it's uh, but it's impossible to defend it on the purely rational logical grounds. And once once uh, if we would be able to do it, then we could move to implementation and, and the quality of IT, etc., which is also we learn uh, not there for now. So so it's very difficult to praise it. That's uh, that, that's my problem with this proposal. Yeah. Can, can I just, Please. yeah, I was going to jump in actually to follow on a couple of things. I think one, you know, the, the points that Joel has been making about um, trust, because I think that's really important, you know, to understand why this is being pushed. So certainly I think, you know, trying and, and Dimitri, you were talking about, you know, the need to somehow rebuild trust in the commission in a coordinated EU response. Um, and, you know, to kind of to think that that trust moves, you know, rather than from national authorities to the commission and to EU bodies. Um, I mean, and certainly, and then, you know, again, watching the past days of, you know, the massive disaster with, you know, the AstraZeneca discussions where, you know, national governments were, you know, kind of saying, okay, we're going to block them. National agencies were blocking them, then, you know, waiting for the EMA. Um, there, I mean, there's clearly an issue there in affirming authority to decide what is safe. In this case, you know, whether this vaccine is safe and, you know, the commission and, and other EU bodies kind of taking on that role. So I think, you know, these different, let's say, geographies of trust play a role in trying to reclaim that. Um, but I think apart, you know, I mean, um, you know, Nicolas, you're, you're right. I mean, it's there. I mean, we have it. We can, you know, we can try to somehow challenge it, make it better. But I think the questions that need to be asked is really, you know, not just what is this for, but who is it for and where, right? Because, I mean, this will not only facilitate movement, it will actively spread disease. It will create further inequality, it will expose some parts of Europe more than others, of course. 
Um, you know, so the Greek government, for example, I don't know about Mallorca, but I know the Greek government has decided to go on a mass vaccination of some of the tourist islands. So everybody on the islands, you know, mm -hmm. to then be able to offer these as kind of vaccinated bubbles, but also presumably to, pro, you know, to protect the local population. But outside of those bubbles, you know, the question is like, who will be in those bubbles? I mean, who will be able, you know, to travel in this, you know, almost, you know, science fiction type world in a protected form? Um, I mean, there's, you know, there, this is just simply impossible. So there will be, you know, trade-offs. I mean, you know, Joel, you're joking about the Catch-22. No, there will be real trade-offs between populations, territories, some places more than others that, you know, that are being, you know, now opened up. I mean, the freedom of movement also means an opening up, mm -hmm. um, not in the good sense. Yeah, yeah. Ter terrible. I mean, the, the, the perspective to end up on a, on a Greek island with everyone being vaccinated there and not being, I mean, what 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 a dystopian world is this, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, we have one question to you, Dimitri, from the audience, uh, or one comment. Somebody wrote, "I see the point of Dimitri, but there is a high probability that Sputnik Five will be approved by the EMA till the first of June. I'm sure there will be a solution for Sinopharm as well. Would that change anything in your argumentation?" No, it doesn't change anything because uh, because these are just two examples out of thousands. There are plenty of vaccines are being are being now developed and tested. There is now a Dutch vaccine, uh, the, the, and the, 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 there are there are two more the Russian vaccines coming. Uh, so this is just the tip of the iceberg. And if we want to vaccinate fast, then then we need to put all the available resources on the ground. Once the vaccine is proven uh, is, 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 is proven safe and, and effective, and once it's used somewhere in the world, it, it, it's absolutely rational to follow the decisions of the Czech Republic, Luxembourg, uh, Hungary, etc., to deploy this vaccine in Europe. Uh, and uh, and as long as the people vaccinated with the wrong vaccines are not the ones uh, whom, we, whom the European Union is offering free movement, this is not really a rational response, uh, even on the terms of the regulation itself. So the regulation is obviously self-contradictory because ultimately uh, the, the polls are not saying that they don't like Sputnik because they think that Sputnik is unsafe. They say that they just like Sputnik simply because they are they are probably more suspicious of, of the Russians, or they are ready to sacrifice the, the idea of safety of their own population more than the Hungarians are, no matter what we think about Putin. I, 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 used, to, I used to be Russian as well, and I renounced that nationality. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not praising Sputnik V uh, for, for, for the reason of, of being a former Russian. Not at all. It's, it's just logical thinking. We need to, we need to deploy as much... Uh, as much as we can possibly get in terms of in terms of the vaccines which are effective and which work so it should not be the EMI EMA uh, certification it should be the the, the, the immunization the, the antibodies in the blood that, that, that are at play so in this in this sense uh, the, the safety of vaccines uh, as I understand it from from my from my legal uh, corner, of the interdisciplinary world is something that plays at the level when uh, when people can be endangered by by vaccination. Once once populations are already vaccinated, dozens of thousands of people, and once we know that that antibodies are there, uh, there is no question about the vaccine at, at this point being unsafe, especially if those if those guys travel. 
So this is uh, this is simply a totally totally different totally different matter. So by confusing the two on purpose, the the regulation simply pays lip, lip service to the to the anti-Russian sentiments in the Polish government in order to make sure that the, that the Poles wouldn't then block uh, this uh, this pretense measure from passing in order to keep on pretending that there will be free movement from from June. And uh, and do we need this kind of pretense? That's an open question. Um, Oscar, I have one question for you, probably, I think, uh, which which is quite close to what we are discussing at the moment. Uh, there were quite some um, consultancy authorities, just like the German Ethics Committee, um, like, I don't know, other academic councils whatsoever, thinking about uh, thinking about vaccination programs right before today. And all of them being rather or many of them being rather reluctant in 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 uh, advising governments to introduce something like this, um, and also the data protection uh, community is, with very good reasons, uh, very reluctant in this. So, what would you expect those sub communities now to do, or what what would you, from a normative point of view, expect them to do? So, or and, and what would you, from an empirical point of view, expect them to do? So what most probably will happen now? Will everyone be, you know, will the German Ethics Committee change its opinion and, and agree now with this new movement? Or what would you expect to happen? Yeah, but if I, I mean, if I can only summarize in one sentence is what you essentially said is that we need proper governance frameworks. Yeah. And when we look at what is on the table, for various different reasons that we've now been discussing for more than an hour, this is certainly not proper governance framework because it doesn't address a clear purpose. It does, it, and, and what I'm actually most worried about from, from uh, really the, the, the data protection uh, formal kind of perspective is that when you just read it from a compliance perspective, it this is very wonderfully uh, written. Right. So it says it has only one purpose, which is only to facilitate free movement, not to enable it, because it also is mentioned that those people who do not want to get vaccinated or, you know, who cannot get vaccinated because they're pregnant or whatever. It, it mentions specifically they should still be able to move freely. This is only the facilitation of free movement, right? And then, um, and, and in that sense, it's really uh, uh, written very uh, watertight. My only concern is that um, this, is, this is so narrow. Uh, and if this tool comes about, that it is highly likely that we will see some repurposing such as, for example, we have driver license. Their main purpose is to uh, show that the, the, the holder has the ability to drive a car, but we use driver's licenses in many countries for all kinds of different purposes to check whether you're of age when you're going to a bar, etc. And just to make a very concrete example, so let's say that um, as, as there is this discussion in Israel now, for example, where a similar system is already in place. So let's say you're a hotel manager. And you have to make sure that all the guests who stay in the hotel have to have the certificate, right? But vaccination is free. Uh, so um, what about your employees if they do not want to get vaccinated, right? And let's say one of the employees is infecting one of your guests. Who is liable for that? 
what what are the answers to these kind of questions or let's say you everybody needs to go to a supermarket what what is with the people who are in in the supermarkets and do not want to get vaccinated so what are you then supposed to do as the supermarket manager apply pressure on those people who work for you who do not want to do it and i mean i know that you nicolaus already raised these kind of questions uh, earlier when we were discussing about contact tracing and there is nothing in this in this framework that it doesn't do so in a nutshell the 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 main concern raised by these committees was we need proper governance frameworks. Uh, this is only one tool. Now we have a proposal, but it's not a proper governance framework. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So open question to all of you, all of us being academics, what should we do then now? Can I jump in? Um, keep talking, keep writing, keep talking to our national governments, keep talking to EU officials, um, talking to journalists very importantly, because I think just as there is um, a lot of um, interest, there's also a lack of both scientific, but also I think regulatory and legal literacy on what is happening. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, kind of the, uh, it's, it's really, you know, really kind of, I think, possible to, you know, to make grand statements and to kind of over and under represent what is happening. So I think, you know, that's, that would be something, you know, that's my immediate response. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's what I feel, you know, I can do apart from talking to my students in lectures, which I do, they're sick of me if they, if they, if they hear something more about, you know, the regulation of the pandemic. Yeah, I see. Anybody else wishing to? I mean, uh, being, being very Irish, I get very awkward when there's silence and need yeah. to speak. Uh, no, I, I, I'm just going to keep echoing Louisa. You can be an academic and you can come do a podcast and you can mm -hmm. listen in to academics speaking about these issues. Uh, I know the primary thrust of all my research right now is trying to talk about these issues in, in a global way. So the, the Symposium on the Refassens blog I'm running right now is all about this. It's bringing academics together to talk about these issues, not only so we can look across the world and find best practices, good practices, emerging good actions that we can reject this, this ranking of, oh, Taiwan is better than Finland and instead mm. say, well, what could we do better? looking around the world, who and what can we look at and say, let's do what they're doing. But also to, to expose, and this is so important for all of these academics, to expose issues and to not, not look at certain countries and say, oh, we didn't expect much from them so we can dismiss it. But look at countries and say, you're not doing well and you could do better. And you're not doing well from a legal perspective and you could do better. I think having open discussions and having open discourse about a regulation coming out of the commission or the use of government by decree in EU states is, is so important. It's having open discourse. This is not something that undermines response to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. It's something that can enhance and improve that essential public trust which is the thing that we just need to keep addressing is so fundamental, not only in terms of choices to taking a vaccine or not taking a vaccine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so before pouring some water into that wine, um, Louisa, perhaps you would like to report on what you're currently doing in this field. 
Well, I mean, one thing that I wanted to mention, and this is not just to the other panelists because they will know already about this, but to those of you listening. Um, so um, with the European Journal of Risk Regulation, we're putting together, together with Alberto Alemano and myself as the co-editors, a special symposium on COVID certificates in Europe, but also elsewhere. And it would be wonderful to have contributions really from around the globe from all sorts of different approaches, not just from law, also from security studies, border migration studies, SDS, um, geography, of course, as well. Um, so we really would encourage people to start thinking about this. Um, if you look at, at the journal's webpage, you'll find the details. Short pieces, so maximum 4,000 words. Um, we would like to get this out very quickly. So we're actually asking for abstracts already by next week. It doesn't have to be anything very long. Um, and then papers already by April, because we really would like to get it out, as I said, as soon as possible, given the timeliness of this issue. So, you know, as we're all saying, to really try to shape the debate, to contribute to the debate. I don't know if we can, you know, aspire to shape it, change it, but at least, you know, add some critical voices to it. So, um, so yes. So thanks for letting me pitch that. And as I said, uh, anybody who's interested, um, you know, please contact me directly or look at the journal's website. Thank you, Louisa, and thank you, Joel. And now here's the the water in the wine. The water in the wine is this sounds very much to me, you know, like with all due respect, the typical academic response to any given problem in the world, right? So we start arguing and we start to write papers and we start to have conferences and we do podcasts and, and we speak to our students and all this. And then suddenly the commission comes out with something that, that nobody was really aware of, right? <laughs> At least in my bubble, <laughs> I, must, uh, I must say, I mean, I... I, I tried to follow European politics quite closely, and I was rather astonished to see this today, uh, as it looks at the moment. So the question to the two of you and probably to all of us is, how do we then finally manage to get this into the to uh, or to get it to get what we are doing on on a level of attention on the radar screen of people who are doing the polit the, the political part of this? And how do we better, manage to get the input from academia into the you know day-to-day -day politics uh, in 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 dealing with this pandemic and i'm i'm really struggling with this let me just mention one point here this is not really what we are paid for and this is not really what we are evaluated against um you know to speak to a minister about what to do or not to do in the council now with this paper right uh we are in a very different scheme so what what, what is your personal answer and what would be your institutional answer to this? Um, if I just may, I, I, I hate to contradict you on this a little bit, uh, but um, well, the fact is that somebody from your network reached out to you and made you aware of this issue. And right now we're all here and talking about it. So I, in that sense, I would not entirely share your skepticism. Um, of course, you have a very valid point, but my impression is, and maybe that's really a human rights lawyer kind of uh, point of view that you have to adopt at some point, otherwise you're getting crazy. But when you look, for example, on the, um, on the discussion about the contact tracing apps and all the discussion about whether they should be decentralized or centralized, etc., what we have now is actually a relatively um, 
you know, solid, um, uh, broad set of principles uh, that could be also applicable to something like this. If you, if you want to find out what they are, you can you can uh, read them in our paper. And of course, it's just principles, right? Uh, there is no guarantee that uh, this will ever become reality. On the other hand, why should uh, always something become reality that academics have developed or brought up? Um, but but I'm not so skeptical about it. But I really think it's important to take a voice and to reach out. Um, mm. And and that's what we can do. I mean, that's also what we're trained to do. Mm. So continue the conversation. Okay, Dimitri, I think you you want to add something. Uh, I, I learned about this from uh, from Le Monde uh, from, from from an article by Louise and Alberto. In, in fact. And then I, I started following a little bit, and uh, there was an RC, there was, I think, La Repubblica, there was uh, Corriere della Sera. So, uh, so th this this kind of communication, it, uh, it, it, it works as it should. But now, how much can we shame the EPP for for coming up with such a with such a flawed idea and lobbying it all the way through? That's a totally that's a totally different matter. So, in fact. Uh, Oscar and I jumped on this issue from 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 a, from a totally different tree. Oscar was busy with some uh, with some more technological things. I was in fact uh, co-hosting a seminar on on selling citizenship and, uh, and 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 selling residence at Oxford. And then and then those guys those guys were friendly enough to to rush our paper through review because uh, because it's a fundamentally important issue, even though it doesn't directly connect with. Uh, with what I was supposed uh, I was supposed to do at Compass at the School of Anthropology, uh, so I think we should we should change tracks and we should we should learn from each other. And then this very podcast is a is, is a clear example of that. Uh, but then how to make ministers read? Well, shame them in the main newspapers like what uh, what Louisa has done uh, the, the, this morning. Uh, but uh, that that might not be enough. And here we, we should all think together and then uh, never stop. Okay. So I would, I would like to slowly come to an end with all this uh, because we have been debating now already for almost 80 minutes um, uh, by probably asking the most eminent question, which is what are your plans for the summer? And do you expect yourself to use a green certificate then? <laughs> and if not, why not? <laughs> yeah, Dimitri, perhaps first. I'm, I'm going to the US. And uh, and they will not uh, recognize a, any kind of this certificate, but I think my my Sputnik vaccine will be fine, and uh, uh, and as long as I stick to the distancing requirements, etc. It's 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 astonishing to speak with friends uh, about who is traveling where, while Europe is locked and does not vaccinate itself. In fact, the 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 the, the planes from Moscow to San Francisco are full. Uh, and, uh, and 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 the world also exists outside of Europe. So I think Joel's contribution to to our debate today was fundamental to to remind us that also Indonesia exists and also Taiwan does. And in fact, Mongolia can be better in terms of mitigating uh, mitigating the pandemic uh, than than Italy or France. And this is again, uh, given that Europe is is the one of the richest regions in the world, this is a disaster and a reminder that probably after the pandemic some some real soul searching has to happen in terms of what has gone so badly wrong in in dealing with this in dealing with this crisis hmm. any other summer plan 
somebody um, wants to report on. So I'll go for it and I'll go out. No, I was just going to offer because I can be brief. Uh, I live in the UK, so I, I don't think I'm going to be looking at a certificate anytime soon. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also become far more modest in my, my dreams during COVID. I simply hope for uh, being able to see a green space. I've been mm -hmm. stuck in the middle of offices for the last 12 months. So just a green field. I don't mm -hmm. even to go to Ireland. Just a green field would be perfect for me. Mm -hmm. I like that green rather than the green pass. I'd go for real green instead, absolutely. Well, um, Dimitri, we can compare notes because I'm going to try to go back to the US this summer to see my parents. And interestingly enough, I mean, unless airlines and airlines are already saying they might begin introducing vaccine certificates, they're not asking for anything. And, uh, you know, let's, let's see. But I think I'd, I'd like to pick up on your point about, you know, not um, being as Eurocentric as we usually are and actually learning from what other countries have done well. One of the things that has troubled me throughout this year was not only the kind of national stereotyping that was going in within Europe, you know, so certainly, you know, being in Amsterdam last year, you know, hearing, oh, yes, it's only authoritarian states in the south of Europe that are imposing lockdowns. We're doing an intelligent lockdown here. Mm. Right. But also, you know, the presumption, well, you know, the things that are being done in East Asia could never be done here. The kind of choices that are being made, I don't know, in New Zealand, in Australia. <laughs> so this ability to look at the fact that there are other choices that can be made also in terms of good governance, not just, you know, um, authoritarian measures, however you consider them. Um, I think that would be already a plus. Mm. Yeah. Oscar. Yeah, I would uh, I plan to go home to where I grew up in, in Tyrol in summer. And I'm pretty or very confident that I get there because I still have some sort of residency there. So that won't be the problem. Uh, at the same time, I'm pretty sure that many of my um, yeah, uh, fellow people there will also want other people, you know, to come there and go there on holiday. So there you have the, the urgency again of the debate. But um, yeah, Let, let's see how it goes. The commission says they want to have the, uh, the proposal out by June. Um, I think for now, it's really just becoming the forum again for having these discussions. And what, what really happens on ground, it will be much more fragmented. And yeah. Mm. It will be very interesting to see whether anyone who has the choice will, or has legally speaking the choice uh, to decide on whether or not to use this, will also uh, make a choice then. So <laughs> that will be one of the interesting questions here. I think uh, this was a wonderful panorama, at least for me. I really enjoyed this a lot, but I don't want to close this before asking all of you whether there's a specific point that we didn't touch that is specifically important to you. Anything that you really want to say and to share? If this is not the case, then thank you so much to all of you. Thank you to our listeners. Um, I'm really pleased to have all of you with us here stay connected, stay interested, and in particular, stay healthy or become as healthy as quickly as possible. Thank you for being with us. Thank you to you and all the best. Have a good evening.